Global Capital Podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Global Capital Podcast. I'm Ralph Sinclair and I'm a frequent issuer's managing editor. And I'm John Hay, corporate finance and sustainability editor. Now, we're bringing you some rarity uh, this week on the podcast in that we're talking about a market, both geographical and in terms of the asset, uh, that we don't normally discuss. We're off to Asia this week to talk about equity-linked issuance and a very exciting deal for South Korean petrochemical company LG Chem, which issued $2 billion worth of exchangeable bonds split into a couple of tranches. Uh, Now, this deal was exciting because it was the largest exchangeable bond ever from Asia. It was the largest Korean equity-linked note at all for years and it was the largest equity link note issued anywhere in the world since January 2022. Uh, first of all, John, for the uninitiated of which, um, well, I'm probably one, um, can you tell us a bit more about uh, equity link issuance and what it is, what it does and what are its main features? Well, yes, equity linked bonds are basically normal bonds that can convert into shares at at a certain point and under certain conditions during their maturities, during their lives. So, for example, a five year bond um, that has that could be converted into shares if the share price uh, you're talking about goes up, say, 20 percent. So there'll be a fixed uh, uh, conversion premium, as it's called, almost always above the current share price at which the bond can be converted by the holders, the investors, into shares of of the company. Now, a a convertible bond is one where the issuer um, issues a bond that can convert into its own shares. Uh, But there's a slightly sort of uh, smaller variant, less common variant, where it's called an exchangeable bond, where the shares that it converts into are the shares of a different company. And uh, you can do this with um, shares of even unrelated companies. But it, but in the case we're talking about, which has been reported on by our um, Asia correspondent Rashmi Kumar this week, LG Chem issued a $2 billion exchangeable into shares of its own subsidiary, LG Energy Solution. So that's a way for it to sort of, in a way, sell forward some of the stock in, in a company it owns, but at a higher price than it could get by just selling it today. Okay, well, we'll be talking with uh, Aidan Gregory, who's our uh, equity capital markets editor and our in-house equity link specialist uh, a bit later on about that and about the uh, conditions for equity linked issuance generally and whether we're going to see uh, or whether we are seeing a renaissance in the market after I had a bit of a bit of a terrible year last year. Um, but I, something I've noticed, John, in the uh, wider bond markets is a real aggression by bond issuers this year to hmm. get their funding done as as early as possible. Mm. Um, I mean, that's pertinent now in particular because we're coming up to that time of year uh, where in the past bond issuances tended to slow down. And that's the period, broadly speaking, between today, which is July the 14th, or more importantly, the mm. Bastille Day holiday, which is the, the sort of traditional um, marker, I guess, at the start of summer. Uh, and then sometime around the end of August or start of September, let's say Labor Day in the US, the first Monday in September, at which point issuance comes roaring back. Um, but we think there's plenty of evidence this year to suggest that issuers will keep bringing deals throughout the summer uh, in a number of markets don't we? Well, um, there certainly seem to be incentives. I think I think what we've noticed is that there's a general scepticism 
about the need for a holiday, right? Right. There's a desire. There's a strong desire for a holiday, and lots of lots of market participants tell us, "Oh, we, you know, we need a holiday." Not just personally, but they feel the market needs a break because it's been very heavy issuance, and sometimes uh, it's pell mell. They'll they'll be like a lot of deals every day for a whole week. It, it's it's actually exhausting, but but it's not just the personal level. It's also um, the sense that the market can become congested and and you know supply and demand being the key drivers in any market uh if you cut off supply it's generally good it enables demand to become keener and the market to sort of refresh itself with with fresh demand sort of unspent money basically and that is sort of generally desirable for the for the health of a market yeah, but I mean, whether this, whether there is a summer break per se, I mean, obviously the market doesn't formally close down for summer, but there's always this sort of fear, isn't there, that people have gone on holiday. It's a perception, isn't it? It's a perception that people have gone on holiday, therefore won't be around to to, to make investment mm. decisions. But it's just, I think, especially since the um, advent of investors working from home more and more, or, or you know, from the beach, I guess, in this case, um, then that's just really that doesn't, doesn't seem to apply in the same way. And indeed, we've seen a lot of summers uh, where there's been a great deal of great deal of issuance. Um, now, Atanas Dinov, uh, Bill Thornhill, and Frank Jackman, our, our bank finance and cover bond team, uh, reported this week from their market about issuers. I guess second tier issuers, so not the big banks, basically escaping or trying to run ahead of the, um, as, they, as one person in the market described it, the wolf pack of national champions that will uh, they they believe will come to the market in September. Um, John, perhaps you could explain that that dynamic. What 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 are what are people worried about with this these uh, bunch of um, I don't know howling wolves and um, what are they trying to escape mm. from? Well, I think there's been this very heavy issuance this year. There was uh, a period during March and April when the market went very quiet because of the uh, stress around banks in the US with Silicon Valley Bank going down and then Credit Suisse in Europe. And, you know, that uh, sort of created a a hiatus, inevitably pushed issuance back and, you know, made, made the period afterwards even busier. But fundamentally, apart from that sort of period of stress, the, the appetite for bank credit is extremely strong at the moment. And it, and that's been the case for, you know, good many months. And, you know, um, banks are being withdrawn from the life support of central bank funding. Uh, it, there are different mechanisms in different uh, territories, but, but essentially that's what's going on. They're having to rely more on capital markets for funding. But at the same time, uh, those markets are receptive. They 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 like bank credit. It's generally good. Uh, you know, inflation and and higher interest rates are generally good for banks. But at the same time, there's this there's this anxiety running through it, and and nobody feels that this is a great economy and a great uh, market situation. The economy's obviously got strength, but but you know, there's inflation. People still worry there could be a recession, and so you know, no funding officer. Is sort of entirely confident about just putting putting their feet up and waiting. No, not least given that sort of traditional ebb and flow over the months in in the primary bond markets, where in September it's usually one of the busiest months. Well, it's usually the busiest month mm. of the year, along with January. Um, 
That, of course, means that the 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 big banks, the national champions, so-called, the household names that do the most borrowing, they tend to come to the market because they know it's like the deepest waters that they mm. will, will have the least mm. of getting done. Of course, the problem mm. then for these slightly smaller banks is that they would then be in the market competing for attention with all these sort of much easier names to buy doing much bigger deals. So what they're concerned about, especially at a time when they're all being forced into the market to do more borrowing rather than taking cash from the central banks, is that they'll have to pay bigger new issue premiums to get their deals done to win investors' attention. So the thinking is that lower tier banks would do well to bring a deal over the summer uh, when they have a lot more of the uh, sort of market to themselves um, and will save themselves a few basis points in terms of new issue premium. And did we see any of that already uh, in this period? Well, yes, there were three deals that were of interest. Uh, there was DNB from Norway, which managed to raise a billion euros with a senior preferred green bond. What was interesting was that about that deal was that the issuer only paid a new issue premium in the highest single digit. So it's quite quite cost effective borrowing. Uh, there was a deal from Caixa Bank in Spain. Uh, what was interesting about that was there was so much demand for the deal that they added an extra tranche to it. Um, during during the execution process, so much bigger than they, I guess, were initially expecting. And then the third deal was from Germany's Ariel Bank. Uh, now, that was a fan brief, so a German cover bond, a uh, bond uh, secured on, um, on mortgages. Um, it attracted more than 3 billion euros of orders. Now, what's particularly interesting about that, in fact, it fab... Oh, sorry. In fact, it flabbergasted someone in the market was that how the issuer had managed to raise a deal that big or with that many orders when it has such heavy exposure to commercial property, which, as we all know, is not going through. A, it's a golden moment at the moment. So they, there's three examples exactly of what we're talking about. Second tier banks getting spectacular deals done just when you thought it was supposed to be quiet and no one was around to buy bonds. Yeah, it's very interesting. And, you know, these are, of course, before Bastille Day. Um, you know, that's today. So next week will be really interesting to see whether um, we do get deals. Um, you're obviously, if, if you come then, accepting the fact that you won't have 100% of the investors at their desks. But I think the trade-off pe people are thinking about is, well, it, you know, if there are 90% of the investors there and I get their full attention, that's probably better than coming on the 5th of September against BNP Paribas and Unicredit, um, you know, and and I get 20% of their attention. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, although, you know, that those there are fears, aren't they? And I think they were quite well expressed uh, by Mark Turner, our corporate bond reporter who covered that market this week, um, about the sort of, you know, if there is a lack of investors around, the sort of negative consequences that that can have on issuance. Yeah, well, um, certainly on the on on market trading, um, I, I think Mike Mike's story was less about um, expectations that there'd be a lot of issuance in the summer. Although I think you know corporate treasurers, just like bank ones, are you know alert and they they know it's not an easy funding market this year. They they will be on the lookout for opportunities, and you know there will be bankers whose holidays get disrupted by uh, clients wanting pricing quoted to them and, and, and potentially bringing deals. But but the, but the main sentiment uh, he was picking up on was anxiety that it could be a very volatile summer. And that's really because um, for the first time over a summer period for a very long time, both the European Central Bank and the Bank of England are not buying corporate bonds. 
you know, the quantitative easing has come to an end and, you know, the market just doesn't have any central bank support anymore. And what it, what it's tended to mean in the past is that if, if there were cheap bonds out in the market, the central bank would pick them up. And that gave a sort of bit of a support to, to the secondary market. Um, but that isn't there anymore. If, you, if you're an investor, you want to sell bonds, you've got to find real other investors that want to buy them. That is inevitably going to push the, push the price down more. And, and what Mike expects beyond that, this general environment is that there will be headlines uh, that, that knock the market about a bit. And was there any evidence from the primary market that uh, investors are sort of worrying already about, um, you know, that that extra risk? Well, um, the first thing is that there have been some of these headline driven moments. Um, Thames Water uh, recent in the last couple of weeks has been bashed about in the bond market because of uh, stories in the papers about them, you know, struggling to get equity injections from their shareholders. And, you know, particularly the subordinated bonds of, of Thames have gone right down. Um, it, you know, this was purely credit driven. It was fundamental move. It, it was, you know, the price action was probably justified and, and ex- to be expected because of the uh, what was happening at the company. But people did tell Mike um, if that episode had happened deeper into August or sort of July, July or August, it, it, it would have the, the moves have been much worse. You know, they, they think there, there would not have been uh, as many investors about to soak up the loose bonds and, and the price action could have been steeper. And basically, that's what uh, he thinks could happen to certain companies if they get into trouble um, in the summer. And of course, another part of the picture is rising interest rates and corporate performance, isn't it? Um, rising interest rates aren't necessarily great for uh, for, for driving um corporate profits no exactly and that's precisely the difficulty that Thames has had or you know it's one of the sources of problems for Thames is that their cost you know interest rate bill has basically gone up um and you know there will be other cases of companies suffering because of high interest rates and you know there's obviously strain on the real estate sector which again has other problems as well but um you know, it's it's not a comfortable environment for all companies at the moment. And, and that means there will be uh, episodes. Well, I'll tell you who it might be a bit more comfortable for, John, and that's public sector bond issuers. As our uh, mm. SSA reporter, Georgie Lee, has uh, noted this yeah. week, and Addison Gong, the SSA, our, our SSA editor. Um, it's an interesting situation because they also... Those issuers, not Addison and Georgie, also made a rampant start to their borrowing programs this year. Uh, they front loaded as much as possible. I mean, if we think back to sort of the end of last year, we sort of we predicted that this would be the case, that issuers would race to get ahead. Uh, and indeed, they've done so. Uh, the biggest issuers in the market like KFW, EIB, CADES, they're all at or around 70 percent done. Um, and of course, the other big Philip uh for issuers in that market was the european union which is um apart from some big sovereigns by far and away its biggest biggest issuer um revealed i think it was last week or the week before that it was only going to borrow a mere 40 billion euros for the second half of the year which is half the amount it borrowed in the first half of the year and uh much much lower than than people were expecting and that's already starting to play out in in the market in terms of um execution and how well bonds are going Yes, but I, I'm I'm always a bit cautious about this thing about you know we're two done two thirds of our funding or seventy percent 
for the summer because if you think about it you know if you basically strike out december and august as non-months for issuance there are 10 months in the year and seven of those do occur before the summer so there's only september october and november left so 70 percent is about where you should be by the end of july now we're not at the end of july yet and interestingly i think one or two of the names have actually got into the 80s percent haven't they ralph uh yes that's right uh the eu itself is of course about 70 percent done um but you know cares uh 75 percent done and of course the european investment bank 80 percent done on its funding program um I, I i certainly take your point about december um but you know i think i think as we're sort of discovering um august isn't necessarily uh quite the um the dead month it's uh often often believed to be i i, I suspect we'll see uh some ssa issuers you know picking off trades here and there um even if we don't see for example one of the the big issuers bring out one of its massive sort of five billion uh size benchmarks but you know i thought it was notable um in the european union still this week just how uh I think those supply expectations have already changed how investors approach the market. I mean, the EU did its first syndication since it announced its second half borrowing program. Uh, it it tapped its two and a half percent of October 2052s for four billion euros, and uh, notably, it managed to amass 73 billion euros of orders for that, deal, well, which is a record for the for the borrower. Yeah. And that's a borrower that set some pretty impressive records already. Now, um, how that manifested itself in terms of uh, the bonds pricing was particularly interesting. There's a convention with EU syndications uh, because, of course, the EU comes so frequently to the market for such a large amount of funding that it really pays it to sort of behave almost like a government borrower and be predictable and steady and boring. Um, and the convention tends to be that they start pricing on their new issues four basis points back of fair value. Uh, they generally try and tighten pricing by two basis points during ex execution, uh, leaving a new issue premium of two basis points. So everybody kind of knows what they're getting, where they're going to end up. And mm. it's this sort of you know, elaborate mating ritual between investors and issuer um, choreographed by the book runners um, where, where everybody's expectations are met and there are no unpleasant surprises. Mm. This time round, uh, it was it was particularly notable that the issuer only started uh, pricing three basis points back of fair mm -hmm. value at 69 basis points over... Uh, over, over now, it, it, you know, these are obviously they seem like small changes and people in mm. the uh, corporate bond market, the fig bond market, emerging markets are probably they don't register when something moves one or two basis mm. points to them. It's, it tends to be tens of basis points. But, you know, in the SSA market, this matters where the amount being borrowed is so much higher and in this case where the maturity is so much longer and the you know the economic effect of each basis point is so much more valuable so ralph do you think that the this move to three basis points back of fair value is that going to be permanent for the eu or was that special for this deal interesting question i don't know uh what was particularly notable about i mean well first of all i'm sure the eu would hope so um and mm. it will certainly while it has this smaller than expected requirement to do over the rest of the year it it may well be the case the, the the important point to note about that is that it might not be permanent because the reason the eu has a lower borrowing requirement for the second half of this year is because it's the loan disbursements where it's going to basically dish out the cash that it's borrowed from the capital markets are somewhat delayed 
So it could well just have a bigger borrowing requirement next year, in which case it will have more to do. You'd expect it to pay, you know, a bigger premium to get that borrowing done. Um, but for now, we'll see. I mean, the other the other pertinent point here is that this particular bond, it had obviously been quite well anticipated that the EU is going to tap this deal rather than the other deals that it has of a similar maturity, because those other bonds had tightened in pricing, whereas this bond hadn't. I guess people were expecting more of it to come mm, to the market. Mm. So this bond was already trading at a premium somewhat to the rest of the EU's curve. So it was already cheap, you might argue. Um, so I think that's a rather special situation that allowed the EU to start off with this sort of three basis point um, sort of implied premium at the start of its pricing process this time around. Um, but the point was it then it then uh, obviously amassed this huge, huge order book and that allowed it to tighten pricing to 67 basis points plus or minus one basis point, which is a tight, which is two basis points tighter with a kind of an option to go one basis point tighter still. So it's sort of a cautious attempt to get to 66, uh, meaning that if it, if it fails and people leave the book, it can always say, oh, well, we only meant to you know price at 67 over anyway. Um, but anyway, they, they didn't. They priced at 66 basis points over mid swaps and uh, therefore paid no new issue premium. It, well, it's a great result, obviously. But it's interesting that the, the huge order book, first of all, is a function to some extent of the small deal size. Because if you if you want some of the bond as an investor, um, you you've got a your allocation of that bond is going to be determined by your percentage of the order book. So if it's a smaller bond and you want ten million, you, you're going to have to inflate your order more to get to sort of show up more in the order book. And um, you know, so I think it's it's sort of you know these these order book sizes are to some extent real and to some extent sort of smoke and mirrors and i think you know we need to remember that but but it, but it, the pricing obviously is not is completely hard reality and that does show uh keen demand for the bond with this move though to tighter initial price thoughts and sort of hope you know hopefully achieving tighter new issue premium in the end the eu is getting closer to to sovereign to the sovereign behavior in the market isn't it Ralph? yes that, that's most sovereign like indeed um obviously it's 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 a most it's most obvious comparisons are to eurozone sovereigns um but there was a prime example uh from the uk this week uh when the the uk tapped its uh uh, five eighths of a percent march 2045 index link guilt for three and a half billion quid um now, what the UK did uh, sort of was you know, kind of comparable to the EU, really, uh, in that it built an absolutely thumping great order book of £39 billion worth of orders. Um, now, that was, I think, the UK's second biggest ever book for a linker. Uh, its biggest was, of course, the first time this bond was issued um, back in April. Uh, that, that achieved a £46 billion order book. Anyway, the point was that the um, the the pricing on this bond ended up uh, at one basis point or maybe even slightly less, three quarters of a basis point, depending on who you ask uh, on, or, on or off the deal. So, yeah, that's exactly right. It's um, These are the biggest, most liquid uh, issuers in the market. And the issuer sort of earns itself a premium for that because of such demand for their bonds. And of course, inflation-linked bonds are bound to be in demand now, given that uh, inflation is a you know, massive worry. Well, especially in the UK, of course. So now we're going to turn to Asia, where Aidan is going to talk to us about that $2 billion exchangeable bond for LG Chem.
Hello, Aidan. Welcome back to the podcast. Good morning, Ralph. Now, a huge exchangeable bond this week for LG Chem from South Korea. Um, tell us a bit about the deal. Uh, what was so exciting about it? What were its main features? Uh, so this is exciting um, because it's the biggest equity link deal globally uh, in well over a year. It's the biggest since January 2022. And it was issued by a South Korean petrochemicals company called LG Chem, and they raised a total of $2 billion. Uh, now, this is an exchangeable bond, so they weren't the underlying wasn't LG Chem's own stock. Uh, the bonds are exchangeable into an electric vehicle battery maker called LG Energy Solution, uh, which is sort of also part of the, the LG uh, Chabol structure. Um, obviously, you know, electric cars uh, are particularly hot asset class right now. So it's generating quite a lot of hype about this trade and it attracted over $10 billion of demand, which it's got to be one of the biggest books on an equity link deal seen in, in recent years. So what was the point of the deal? Basically, uh, when, when an issuer does convert exchangeable bonds, it's quite a nifty way of raising, um, raising cheap financing on a stake that it may be, it might be a core stake. It's usually done on, on stakes that are the non-core to a corporate. Uh, but it's basically a way of, of raising like very cheap financing upfront on a stake without having to to sell that stake in the in the market basically so in this deal the the um shares will only be sold the shares in lg energy solution that is if uh the share price of that company goes to a certain level so so what are those levels uh, so in this case, uh, it was a dual tranche deal. So one one tranche has an exchange premium of 25% and the other 30%. What does that mean? It basically means that uh, that's how much the share price of the underlying has to rise for the bonds to be exchanged into into equity, which, which given which given the hype around electric cars is, uh, is perfectly feasible. L- LG Energy Solutions stock is up more than 30% from a year ago so it's very feasible that these bonds will turn into equity given the given the hype around the sector if i was a if i was keen to get exposure though to um the underlying shares why wouldn't i just buy the shares uh, convertible bonds uh, have have um basically have an innate feature called convexity whereby you get equity like returns on the upside while also retaining uh, bond-like protections on the on the downside. Right. So if my predictions don't come true and the shares don't go up another thirty percent or whatever, then I I don't um, or they go down. I don't I don't I don't lose. I guess. No, you uh, you would receive your money back at at par at, at maturity, as long as the company doesn't go bust, which is obviously the problem with all bonds. And you also get paid a coupon in the meantime on top of on top of the option to. Convert your, convert your bonds into cheap stock if an issue of stock surges. So if um, LG Chem, the parent company, is getting out of this, therefore the ability to sell the stock forward at a, at a higher price than it's at today. But um, if um, but, but what else are they getting out of it? Uh, well, they're getting very cheap financing. I mean, the coupons on on the tranches. Uh, you know, one tranche was one point two five percent and. The other was 1.6%, uh, which just given the rate environment at the moment with rampant inflation around the world, it's, it's incredibly cheap financing on 
you know, two billion dollars of, of money coming into the company. Yeah, uh, LG Chem is an investment grade company, so it can borrow cheaply in in debt. It can borrow relatively cheaply in debt markets anyway. But they, by doing an exchangeable bond, they've saved around three eighty to four fifty basis points a year versus its existing credit curve. So it's a pretty material cost saving. Like at a time when many companies are being negatively impacted by rising borrowing costs so why were they able to do such a fantastic deal now is is the um is the equity linked note market going through something of a golden era or are there sort of specific specific conditions in in the market and in the in the economy that that permit a deal like this to do so well at the moment so i wouldn't say we're in a golden area because the market had an extremely tough time last year during the, the volatility that we saw in the wake of these rampant levels of inflation that we've seen and also the war in Ukraine. So last year, there was a severe downturn in issuance as you know global stocks entered a bear market. But as we sort of headed into this year, we've, we've gradually seen um, the markets sort of head onto the comeback trail and more and more companies are beginning to, to issue convertible bonds again. And it's, it's mostly driven by the fact that equities have stabilized by and large, over the over the course of the last seven months, and the S and P five hundred, for example, is up more than eighteen percent year to date. So we're almost in in bull market territory on on U.S. equities again. Uh, so that obviously, you know, provides more of an incentive for companies to issue convertible bonds because you're issuing issuing the bonds off, you know, much higher stock prices. But also just um, the the cost of borrowing has, has risen so exponentially that you know the the area of zero rates and and cheap money is is over now, and there's just such a material incentive for companies to look at convertible bonds again, like despite the fact that they're dilutive instruments. So obviously, doing two yards in in one go—that's a bit of a whopper. So, um, but give us a flavour of how that fits into sort of overall volumes. So if you sort of can you tell us what volumes were last year and what they've been this year, for example, to give us a bit of context. So the global convertible market this year, uh, the run rate is well, well ahead of where we were this time last year. So in 2023, year to date, uh, over $55.2 billion of convertibles have been issued globally. That compares to just $35.3 billion during the same period in 2022. So it, it's very clear from the numbers that the, the market is now enjoying a, a pretty spectacular resurgence after such a difficult year last year. And is that um, evenly spread around the world? I noticed that in Rashmi Kumar's story about uh, the LG Chem deal, there were, she mentioned another Korean deal uh, only a couple of months ago that was $1.7 billion. And then in the same week, this week, there was a, another deal in Hong Kong. So th- there's quite a lot of activity there, but we don't see that much in Europe, do we? No, it isn't shared equally between the different regions. And the convertible market is primarily driven by Asia and the US, where in a, in a much bigger way than Europe, they're comprised of the sorts of companies that, that tend to, to issue convertibles, like particularly technology companies, like the, the US stock market is absolutely stacked with growth companies. And it's a similar story in, in Hong Kong. So does this mean we're going to be seeing more of these sort of spectacular two billion deals from asia or any other parts of the market uh, the u.s market has been incredibly busy as well i mean uh, the in in the americas region year today we've had 28.4 uh, 
billion dollars of issuance. So the US the US accounts for more than half of the global market. Um, and it's worth remembering as well that it was in the US where convertibles were originally invented to to finance the re- construction of the railroads in in the 19th century. But the, the run rate in the US this year is you know is more than double where we were this time last year and it's been fueled by a string of of jumbo deals like not just from the tech sector but there've been large deals from energy and like all kinds of other companies who are affected by the, the rising cost of borrowing so aiden um you know that's the us and, and asia but what about europe um is is there likely to be any increase in activity here so the situation in europe is actually very baffling and a lot of the equity link bankers of late have been sort of scratching their heads and wondering why more companies haven't taken the plunge and issued convertibles because the market had a very strong start to the year in the first quarter. There, there was loads of issuance in Europe, but then it just sort of it just sort of died, and there was there's barely anything in the in the second quarter. And although the run rate in in EMEA, like the other other world regions, is is spectacularly up on twenty twenty two numbers you know the numbers in europe are very small compared to to apac and and the us like it, it's just 7.9 billion dollars year to date in europe and uh it almost doesn't make very very much sense because all the fundamentals behind the convertible market are there right now and yet the issuers in europe just aren't taking the plunge and if you ask the equity link bankers about it they usually roll out various excuses like how the bank financing market in Europe is is much more competitive and, and available versus other regions or a lot of a lot of European companies are much more sensitive to dilution than they yeah. are in the US. Um, but it doesn't really make sense. But they do think that it will start to change soon, like particularly when we get into the into the autumn. Um, with you know with rates in the Eurozone and and the UK expected to continue rising for the time being like it really does have it really does push companies into into seeking like alternative sources of financing which the convertible market offers Well, don't forget that the best place to follow the course of the primary bond markets over the summer and any month, really, is at globalcapital.com. Thank you to John and Aidan for joining me for recording this edition. And thank you most of all for listening. We'll be back with more from the capital markets next week. So thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.